as the first and I believe miraculously still the youngest academic appointment dedicated to biomedical engineering in Oxford, I'm extremely honoured to have been tasked with introducing today's speaker. Professor Lionel Tarasenko completed his undergraduate and doctoral studies in engineering at Oxford before being appointed to university lectureship in 1988. He was elected to the chair in, biomedical engin in electrical engineering in 1997 and to a fellowship of the Royal Academy of Engineering in 2000. Professor, contributions, uh, Professor Tarasenko's contributions to the development of novel signal processing techniques for diagnosis have been very widely recognized across both academia and industry and led to far many distinctions and awards to be enumerated in the context of the short introduction. Building on the work of the founding director of the Institute, Dr. Fred Cornhill, whose efforts resulted in the construction of state-of-the-art research facilities on the Churchill Hospital site for biomedical engineering, Professor Tarasenko has already made his mark as the next director of the Institute. He has been the architect of the bioengineering theme of the joint NHS University of Oxford Biomedical Comprehensive Research Centre of Excellence, which will put Oxford in a truly unique position to translate laboratory-based research into clinical practice over the next five years. Furthermore, he has acted as an absolutely outstanding mentor to many young academics in Oxford, including myself. Therefore, without further ado, to describe the past, present and future of biomedical engineering at Oxford, I give you Professor Lionel Parasenko. Thank you very much, Constantine, for um, these very kind words. Um, I have a near impossible task, even though I'm going to concentrate on advances in biomedical engineering in Oxford only, because it is our centenary. Um, to try and do so in 55 minutes is almost impossible. Um, nevertheless, I shall attempt it. I shall start with a definition of what biomedical engineering is, and all of us who work in the field attempt to use the principles, knowledge, techniques of engineering and the physical sciences to address unmet clinical needs. And this is very much inspired by the first director, Dr. Cornhill, who's always telling us that it is an unmet clinical need that we should be trying to solve rather than reinventing another wheel uh, to solve a problem that's already been solved. Now, Oxford Biomedical Engineering in the last uh, 40 years um, has made a huge contribution. Um, we are a unified engineering science department, as you well know if you've attended any of these lectures, and that provides, and I hope my thesis will be uh, confirmed by the evidence that I present uh, later on today, um, that provides an ideal context for biomedical engineering research, which is truly um, a multidisciplinary endeavor. And if you count, you probably have had the time to count the list of contributors to this evening's lecture, there are 12. So my impossible task in the next 50 minutes is to try and summarize the contributions of these 12 very distinguished people, uh, some older than others, um, who have really put Oxford on the map worldwide, I would say, in terms of biomedical engineering. And because doing that in 50 minutes is already a pretty tall order, there will not be time for questions at the end of this uh, talk, but I've asked every one of these um, people listed here to wear badges and over drink, please collar them and ask the question that you really wanted to ask uh, but didn't have time to do so. The two other thanks are very much due. First of all, to clinical collaborators. I think Oxford is a unique place to do biomedical engineering because we are treated as equal partners, we as engineers, by our clinical collaborators. And I've worked with people in Imperial, UCL, Cambridge, other universities, and they don't have the same privilege as we do to work with truly outstanding world-class clinical collaborators who work with us in an equal partnership. And there are so many of them that it would actually double the length of my talk to list them. So in fact, I've taken their names out, but they know who they are. Some of them are here tonight, and we really do want to thank you for the way that we've been able to work with you um, over the past decades. And finally, uh, thanks also to Technicos, the sponsors of this evening's lecture. Um, one or two of the principals can't be here for various reasons, but we are truly grateful for their sponsorship of this lecture and also the huge impact they've had on biomedical engineering in Oxford and will continue to have for uh, over at least the next 15 years. 
uh, for reasons that uh, I can explain outside of this lecture. So thank you very much to Technikos for their sponsorship. Now, where does the story begin? It actually begins in the late 60s. So the first part of my talk will be the first 25 years, which I've broadly defined to be from 1965 to 1990. Um, and it begins in two places at once, down here in the medical engineering unit, and I shall come back to that, because I didn't think I ought to do a split-screen presentation. Um, down here in the medical engineering unit with Brian Bellhouse, and up in Headington at the Nuffield Orthopedic with John O'Connor, who started to look at um, low transmission through the hip, as you can see from this paper uh, published in 1971, with some of his research students, and perhaps more importantly, because I've hinted that um, biomedical engineering is truly collaborative, in this case with a well-known orthopedic surgeon, Mr. John Goodfellow. From the hip, they went on to study the knee, and these little um, semi-lunar um, uh, cartilages that you can see on the top left, are called the menisci, uh, they're attached to the top of the tibia, and they showed very quickly that these menisci serve to increase the contact areas between the bones at the knee, um, between the surfaces of the femur and tibia in order to decrease the contact pressure. So here, a normal knee with a menisci, you can see the load is evenly distributed. If you remove them, then you have a much higher load where the two surfaces meet. And of course, very often biomedical engineering is inspired by nature, and if nature uses the menisci to optimize the load transmission in the natural joint, then could man do the same thing in the design of an artificial knee? And the answer, of course, as most of you here will know, is yes, because it's the design of the Oxford knee. Now, the upper component here um, has a spherical surface for attachment to um, the, the femur. The lower compartment has a flat surface for attachment to the tibia. And interposed between them, but not attached to either, is a plastic meniscal bearing with a spherical upper surface matching the femur and a flat lower surface matching the tibia. The bearing is free to move relative to both metal components. Now, what were the uh, perceived advantages, I'm just looking for the uh, pointer, of um, uh, this particular design? First of all, it allowed retention of all the ligaments um, it was unconstrained so that the soft tissues, muscles and ligaments could control the kinematics and the mechanics of the joint. It was fully conforming uh, in all positions of the joint uh, with large contact areas, low contact stresses and low wear rates and applies only compressive stresses to the underlying bones so that the loosening rates ought to be low. And from 76 to 84, the Oxford knee was used for bicompartmental replacement with a set of components shown here uh, implanted in both the medial compartment on the left, as you can see, and the lateral compartment on the right. Um, now, once you start doing this, of course, you need to monitor what happens to the patients who have uh, the artificial knee inserted, and this is called survival rates. So in 1986, when the outcome of 300 operations was reviewed, it was found that the critical factor was whether um, the anterior cruciate ligament, and those of you who follow football will know that it's often talked about in the sports pages, um, uh, cruciate ligament injuries uh, have had a major impact on the career of players uh, such as Gascoigne and Ern, um, as I'm sure one or two of the uh, people down here know well. But it also has a huge impact on whether the Oxford knee, as originally designed, could work or not. If you look at survival rates against years implanted, um, what you see is that the, the patients for whom the anterior cruciate ligament was intact at the time of the surgery did much better with a survival rate well over 90%, but there was an unacceptable failure rate in patients whose anterior uh, cruciate ligament uh, had been destroyed, as shown here on this picture. So, from 1982 onwards, the Oxford knee was used for unicompartmental replacement, mainly in the medial <coughs> compartment. In, fa in uh, 1987, the phase two device was introduced, making the surgery easier and more predictable. And since 1997, uh, phase three design 
is the minimally invasive surgery design, which makes the operation possible through a very small incision. Uh, the clinical evidence suggesting that this is the best way to treat the 30 patients or so who still have an intact anterior cruciate ligament. So maybe those of you who are squeamish uh, could turn away now um, because this shows a knee after implementation um, through an incision of about 10 centimeters, four inches. Uh, critically, I'm told, and I have to take uh, John O'Connell's word for this, with no division of the muscles. Um, a little video is called for now. This is a patient three hours post-op. You can obviously see where the knee has gone in. And remarkably, within three hours of the operation, the patient can already walk normally, and he will be ready for discharge within one or two days. A truly remarkable achievement. So that's the start of our story. Um, further down the hill, about 100 yards from here, Brian Bellhouse uh, was working in the medical engineering unit. Um, uh, in fact, working with Donald Schultz, who had been his thesis supervisor, um, Donald Schultz, after whom one of the chairs in this department is, is, is named, um, Brian and Donald invented a needle probe with a thin film thermometer mounted in its foot. And they used this probe to do experiments on anesthetized open chest animals and measure the blood velocity as you use the probe and traverse it across the aorta. Now, these are the recordings of pressure and aortic velocity, pressure the top velocity, the lower trace, um, in an anesthetized dog. And the velocity is laminar. And if you look at the reverse flow, it's very small compared with the forward flow. And if you move the probe across the aorta, um, there's very little variation in the velocity signal, indicating that the velocity profile is flat. And in fact, the reverse flow, as you can see here, is small and so small that the valve had to be nearly closed, also was the hypothesis, when blood flow stopped. And Brian tried to explain why that could be. And this is, I suppose, where vortices appear for the first time in Brian's work. Um, vortices um, was something that he worked with for a very long time. And in this case, he established the fact that um, vortices um, were set up, were established in the sinuses behind each of the uh, aortic valve cusps, which allowed the valve to open wide and then to ease the aortic valve back towards closure, even while blood was flowing forward through it, so that on the right, as you can see, you only need a small amount of reverse flow to seal the valve, um, uh, as, as indicated by uh, the picture on the right. So that was the, word, the work of Brian, together with his father, to elucidate uh, the mechanism of closure of the aortic heart valve, pioneering work in the 70s. Soon after that, Brian made use of vortices in a different context. Uh, membrane devices for treating blood um, and showing uh, using these novel membrane devices that gas exchange in the lung, for example, solute removal in the kidney, or filtration for reinfusion of blood could be made much more efficient if you stirred the blood using either furrowed or dimpled membrane surfaces as shown here and pumping the blood left and right on this picture um, back and forth across them. Because what happens in some very neat and elegant work that of course I don't have time to go into, both theoretical and experimental, Brian showed that again vortices were established in the hollows during forward flow and then ejected when the flow reversed, which allowed the blood to be stirred across the channels defined by the membranes and gave much more e efficient filtration. And uh, Brian, being an experimentalist as well as a theoretician, built some of these membrane devices. Here's a nine-channel membrane oxygenator, um, which was uh, successfully tested uh, in animal experiments and then subsequently uh, developed for clinical use by Johnson & Johnson. But as I'm sure most of you know, what Brian is most famous for is needle-free delivery of drugs and vaccines. And I think this diagram comes from the first pattern. It's a pattern that's probably worth um, several millions of pounds, if hundreds of millions of pounds. Uh, it's the pattern that, projected, that uh, protected the Padaject technology. Here, the first design uh, consisting of a gas-filled reservoir, a drug cassette with thin membranes top and bottom, with drug particles trapped between them, 
and a conversion-diversion nozzle that you can just see close to the middle here. Now, when the gas is released with the plunger valve that you can see here at the back, um, the increased pressure bursts into the cassette membranes, and the gas drags the drug particles and delivers them to the target skin at almost 500 meters per second. But honestly, it doesn't hurt at all. Um, <laughs> the gases bounce off the skin. The particles go through just underneath the epidermis, exactly where they need to be for maximum efficiency. And um, the gas, having bounced through the skin, is passed through a silencer and discharged into the atmosphere. Um, and this is some work by some uh, students in Brian's lab doing some computational fluid dynamics of um, what happens, showing, the, again, the, the source of compressed gas, accelerating the particles within converging, diverging nozzle. Then you have this sequential burst of two diaphragms generating a shock wave, which means that the particles, as they enter the skin, at about 500 meters per second. Um, and uh, whether drugs or vaccines uh, are transferred to exactly the place that you need them for maximum efficiency and maximum benefit to the patient. And my final slide on this is the current Pathogen uh, design, which is now approved for clinical use in the USA. So that was the first 25 years in terms of um, mechanical engineering, biomechanics at the top of the hill, down here in the medical engineering unit, mostly fluids. But of course, this is my one slide about what happens outside Oxford in this time. What was happening outside of here is, of course, the development of body scanners. And indeed, it's worth remembering, uh, and to be non-parochial for a few seconds, that the two uh, uh, winners of the Nobel Prize for Medicine, who are engineers and physicists, are the people who invented the CT scanner, if you will, and the MRI scanner, Sir Godfrey Hansfield and Sir Peter, um, Peter Mansfield, both of them in English, of course. Um, and, and this work was being done around about that same period, and CT scanners and magnetic resonance imaging scanners were beginning to appear everywhere, which was very, very much serendipity, because around about this time, uh, we managed to entice uh, Professor Brady back from the States in 1985, and um, he uh, gradually, over a period of time, in which um, he and I had a number of uh, interesting conversations, which can't be repeated here, um, uh, but uh, gradually, over a period of time, started moving away from robots into medical image analysis. And, in fact, the first um, images I'm going to show go back before uh, the scanners is simply mammography to try and, and decide whether um, uh, a woman has breast cancer or not. And here we have two images shown left and right. And Mike showed this to two of the UK's most experienced breast radiologists. And uh, they each had a look at the mammograms to estimate uh, a key risk factor for breast cancer, which is the percentage of dense tissue. And expert A estimated on the left 35%, on the right 40 You can see the other expert 50 and 25 uh, It's great to tell them that actually the, an the answer should all be the same number. Um, <laughs> it is the same breast, but it turns out that the left breast was exposed for twice as long as the right. Um, and so as a result of that, it creates an artifact. It creates variability in the clinical judgment. Could this be taken out? Um, could we do quantitative image analysis in a way that uh, takes out these factors, the fact that the image intensity relates to the anatomy in a very complex way? Very important principle in engineering science, which we apply to all of our biomedical engineering work, is go back to first principles. And what Mike and his student Ralph Heinem did was to go back to the first principles of how the image is first generated, so to the physics of the image generation process, and then came up with an algorithm that models the physics of image acquisition to give a quantitative representation of the image, which then assigns to each little pixel in the image the amount of non-fat tissue, which they called SMF, the standard mammogram form, at that pixel location. And once you do that, it turns out that the numbers are the same, because you've taken out um, the effect of the different exposures. So the intensity on the right is 1728. 
the intensity on the left, 3401, but SMF has taken all of that and come out with a figure of 4.3 centimetres in each case. Now, SMF has really grown substantially over the last decade, so much that it is standard in a number of products, including this commercial uh, product um, uh, uh, being used now the world over. So the breast X-ray image is convert, converted into the standard, standard mammogram form, the SMF form, and it would take me too long to take you through all of these, but all the applications of uh, radiology in, in the case here of breast cancer are covered by the technology originally developed in the late 80s and early 90s by Mike and his student Ralph Heiden. Now, one other uh, application of this sort of technology, which uh, will feature once or twice later on in the talk, is in the fact that, and this often happens in engineering, is you have two sources of information, neither on its own, or maybe more than two, maybe three, but none of these sources of information on their own can convey the information that you're looking for. Here we have a CT scan uh, with a region of interest, gives you a very high precision picture of the anatomy, but the information you're looking for, is there a tumor or not, is ambiguous. So of its own, the radiologist would not be able to interpret that picture. However, another imaging modality, positron emission tomography, PET scans here of the whole body, reveals a possible tumor. But the problem with a PET scan image, it's very low resolution. So could we, or could Mike and his team, um, fuse the two together, combine them together from the CT and the PET to provide the definitive diagnosis. And you can see with your very own eyes that the fusion of the information of the two images provides a definitive diagnosis of the tumor that you're looking for. And again, and this will be a theme to which I will return, this is now a commercially implemented uh, solution um, uh, by Mirada Solutions, which is a company that was spun out from uh, Mike's lab and has twice been taken over since. It's in fact part of Siemens now. And the commercial product from Siemens Molecular Imaging is here. Um, and this is really a follow-on from the previous slide where you go from the left, uh, the PET-CT image fusion. So the upper left, you have the CT, again with the um, high precision here. Um, uh, the lower left is the kind of low-resolution um, fluorodeoxyglucose PET image, FDG PET. The upper right, then you see the PET image fused with a CT by non-rigid restoration of the PET data using the cornered frame from the CT. So this is being used worldwide now in terms of analyzing images uh, through the Siemens uh, Molecular Imaging uh, Division, which uh, took over the company that took over Mirada Solutions. Around about the same time, just to, for a, a quick personal note, I was um, being appointed, as Constantine said to this department 20 years ago, next month. In fact, in a fortnight's time, I will be celebrating my 20th anniversary. And uh, my first interest was uh, neural networks, and the particular application was sleep analysis. Now, you all know that quality of life, and I know there are one or two young fathers in the audience here, including Constantine, um, is heavily dependent on quality of sleep. Now, I'm not talking about um, sleep interrupted by young children, but sleep interrupted by some form of sleep disorder, such as insomnia or heavy snoring, or in fact, when your airways collapse, which is known as obstructive sleep apnea. And by the way, obstructive sleep apnea is mostly a male disease because we tend to put on weight around here in the upper thorax. Women put on weight somewhere else. Um, <laughs> and therefore don't suffer from OSA. So if you have that sort of problem, you will be sent to a sleep clinic, probably with an 18-month waiting list at the moment. That's not part of the 18-week target for a waiting list, where various signals will be recorded throughout the night, including the brain's electrical activity. It's then printed out on paper, and a trained sleep technician will take between two and five hours to go through the whole record page by page because there are no automated systems. So briefly, what we did is we got various typical EEG signals. I hope all of you are up there in the awake category. Um, but if you are beginning to nod, off, to nod off, you would be in light sleep here. If you were in very heavy sleep and snoring, you'd be in um, what's called stage 4 sleep. Uh, you go to progressively deeper sleep here. And you can see that the waveform or its frequency content varies according to depth of sleep. Although, of course, these are clean waveforms from a scorer's manual. 
And what we did is we trained a neural network to analyze the frequency content in those waveforms, classify it into three classes at the output, uh, wakefulness, light sleep, or deep sleep here at the outputs. And then having trained a neural network, we were able to use it for the automated analysis of the EEG recorded from patients in the clinic with sleep disorders such as OSA. And I've shown you a trace here where you can see it for yourself. You can actually see the increase in frequency content here, here, and here. This is a very ob obvious arousal. Somebody's falling asleep and waking up because of, um, they have not been breathing during that time, so they've become apneic. The brain wakes them up, they arise, and then they go back to sleep. They arise, then they go back to sleep. And the expert reviews this and scores it, and our automated network, neural network, had up here at the top wakefulness, arousal, deep sleep here, and in the middle light sleep. And you can see the arousals here, here, and here converted to the automated scoring here. That's two minutes of data, three arousals. If you go to 20 minutes and look at the trace, this person, this is scored according to the ASDA rule, nothing to do with supermarkets. It's the American Sleep Disorder Association. And there are 26 arousals. This person has fallen asleep and woken up 26 times in 1,200 seconds, 20 minutes. And what you can see from the neural network analyzing the brain's electrical activity is at the top here, all the times when the person is rising, they're trying to go back to sleep. They only ever get to light sleep. Very occasionally, there's the odd spike into deep sleep, but that person is getting appalling sleep quality. And this sort of system was able to automate the analysis and tell us how severe the obstructive sleep apnea is and how well the treatment was working because in this case we uh, set up another uh, spin-out company, Oxford Biosignals, which, whose first product um, was a kind of Walkman with three electrodes that you put on your head to have your sleep quality or severity of OSA um, uh, assessed by the neural network technology. So... Uh, it's taken me 20 minutes to get through 1965 to 1990. Um, that's where the first quarter century of biomedical engineering was. You can see the me mechanical engineering with uh, John O'Connor and Brian Bellhaus, Mike Brady as professor of information engineering, uh, and myself originally within Mike's information engineering <coughs> domain, uh, doing biomedical signal processing, in this case, sleep analysis. Let's jump forward, and before we do that, just sorry to mention the fact that in many of these cases, um, the work done in our research lab was transferred to university spin-out companies. I've already mentioned uh, Padeject, uh, Mike's company, Mirada, and two companies that uh, um, I've been involved with, Oxford Biosignals and T-Plus Medical. Let's jump forward to the last 10 years in order to try and uh, finish by 6 o'clock. Now, mechanical engineering, first of all, has had a great tradition. That tradition has been continued by the work of uh, Dr. Amy Zavatsky, again um, up at the hill, um, following on from uh, John O'Connor, so John O'Connor's legacy, if you will, um, looking at soft tissue in injuries such as tears, again, of the anterior cruciate ligament, ligament uh, which can be very difficult to treat clinically. And this slide shows... Um, from the top, a black and white photo of uh, the anterior cruciate ligament and a sketch of its replacement here. Uh, tensile tests being done uh, in collaboration with our colleague Paul Buckley using an instrument materials testing machine. And then finite element um, uh, simulations of the tendon compression test. Similarly, a combination of experiments and computer modeling has been used to study the mechanics both of the natural knee joint and the behavior of knee replacements. Um, and with this slide showing on the left, again, the finite element of uh, tibia with Oxford knee replacement. Uh, the patient x-ray um, with, um, uh, uh, and the x-ray simulated from the finite element model results. Um, the Oxford knee testing rig here that you can see, and again, uh, some 3D and 2D uh, knee joint finite element models. Um, and if you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard uh, the lecture from Julian Morris um, describing the Vicon uh, system used for uh, clinical gait analysis. Here, um, um, Oxford currently leads the world 
in uh, developing a new multi-segment model, the foot for use in clinical gait analysis. You can see here on the left the Vicon markers um, set for tracking the foot motion. Um, the schematic here of the foot model segments uh, uh, and a skeleton animated in the Vicon software showing the leg kinematics between the foot and the ground. Also up there at the Nerfield Orthopedic, um, a new area of research has been started by Mark Thompson, um, which, is, which we call mechanobiology. If you want um, the intersection between biomechanics and uh, cell biology. Tissues in the musculoskeletal systems are sensitive to mechanical loading. So the way they heal, or the way they degenerate, the way all of us get arthritis as we age, is strongly affected by the mechanical loading experiences, whether you played in goal uh, for 20 years, or like Brian Bell has um, uh, played as centre-back uh, for 30 years, or kept wicket, um, the degeneration is affected by the constant um, uh, standing up and uh, uh, kneeling of such a sporting activities. Skiing is no better, so those who are not here because they're skiing at half term um, will be suffering for it uh, down the road. Um, <laughs> now, the aim of the research started by uh, Mark is to bring together uh, biologists on the right and uh, engineers with expertise in uh, biomechanics um, in order to develop this new vision of understanding the basic science of how the tissues are able to sense and respond to the loading and then apply this knowledge to improve both the detection and treatment of uh, musculoskeletal disorders. Um, and here on this slide, um, you can see the sort of work that um, molecular biologists do routinely. It's a cartoon representing a green uh, GFP cell cultured on the silicon mem silicone membrane being strained in a commercially available culture system. Um, at the same time, as you can see on the right, uh, Dr. Thompson has been making direct measurements using fluorescence microscopy um, and then trying to correlate these um, with the gene expression and the timing reported by the geneticists with whom he collaborates. However, uh, just as important uh, to the cells as the substrate strain is the fluid shear stress that they experience. And so Mark and his team have begun to characterize this using computational fluid dynamics as shown here to try and answer the question of which stimulus, which mechanical stimulus is most important in determining the cell behavior. So that's at the cell level. One level up if you want at the tissue level. Again, determining the mechanical environment in which cells operate in patients. There it's looking at the, um, understanding the micromechanics of tendon. Um, light microscopy, as you see at the bottom, is used to measure the local deformation of the tissue under load, and then image correlation techniques from looking at the images at the bottom um, are used to calculate the local displacement and strength fields as now superimposed on the top image. Okay, so we now move back down the hill to where, at the moment, Constantin uh, Kusios has taken over for a short time because he's also moving up to the hill, and more of that in a minute. Um, the medical engineering unit at 43 Banbury Road, working, amongst other things, on organ transplantation. Now, you probably know all of these figures, the fact that in the USA, there are about 100,000 patients on the transplant waiting list, 75,000 awaiting kidneys, about 17,000 awaiting livers. Uh, and yet, if you look at the number of transplants performed, it's very small compared to those who are waiting for those operations. And at least 2,000 patients die each year waiting for liver transplants. Why is that? Because, paradoxically, just about the same number of livers are not transplanted because of the current preservation techniques. At the moment, most organs are retrieved from heart-beating donors. Um, if we could use the organs from donors after non-heart-beating, so when the heart has stopped beating, we could double the organs available for transplantation. But at the moment, this only accounts for by 5% of all transplants. What's the problem? We cannot use non-heart-beating donor organs because the um, fact that the organ is preserved at normal body temperature and you get ischemic damages, damage at those uh, temperatures and preservation injury. And what uh, Constantine and uh, his collaborator, Professor Peter Friend, have done is 
been the first, because people have been looking at this for at least 100 years, to achieve organ preservation at normal body temperature. The major engineering difficulty is the fact that a functioning organ will dramatically change its vascular resistance uh, to flow. And Constantine and uh, Professor Friend have developed a novel perfusion uh, technology. I don't have time to take you through all the control circuit that you see there on the right, which enables the organ to choose its own blood supply and so that blood is never forced through the organ as it alters its vascular resistance. So there is an automated controller and a lot of know-how uh, gained through 300 perfusions, uh, which has led now to a device that makes it possible to preserve normal organ function outside the body for longer than three days. And this device is about to enter clinical trials in 18 months from now. And you can see um, all of its advantages here on the right. I've already mentioned the three times. The quality of the organ being delivered to the patient. Actually being able to use damaged organs um, and bring them to a level suitable for uh, transplantation. And, of course, the technology also tells you how viable the organ is during preservation. Still in mechanics, computational fluid dynamics. Now, cardiovascular disease kills about 40% of, of, of us in the Western world. And one example that most of you are probably fa familiar with is the cerebral aneurysm, which is a weak or thin spot in the blood vessel in the brain that balloons out and fills with blood. It, it can leak or rupture, causing a brain hemorrhage. One of the possible um, treatments is to thread a catheter through the femoral artery and uh, using a guide wire, put some detachable coils, um, which are platinum wire, um, and release them into the sac, if you want, into the aneurysm. They then fill the aneurysm, block it from the circulation, which means that the blood in the aneurysm clots, which effectively destroys the aneurysm. Here uh, you can see an um, angiographic detection of the aneurysm. You can probably spot it for yourself by now. Quite a difficult track from here, but it's about there. Um, three to five percent of the general population affected. They're relatively easy to detect. Um, 30, 40 percent of, of ruptures um, are immediately lethal. An additional 40% lead to death within four, four weeks. How should we treat these so that we don't end up with a sort of picture here on the right? <coughs> well, this is where computational fluid dynamics really help because we can answer two questions. If the disease is, de is detected either with or without symptoms, could we, using our modeling techniques, assess the long-term evolution and its risks in a patient-specific manner? One of the messages of what we're doing in biomedical engineering is personalizing the treatment, personalizing the healthcare. And if we do decide to intervene, can we actually try and simulate what the intervention would be and optimize it to minimize the risk of complications? And this is, as I've said, um, where simulation comes in because we can do this with our computers, of course, in a way which is perfectly repeatable, patient-specific, and will not harm the patient. So the... Um, the top picture here shows uh, CFD um, uh, to derive blood flow information for an uncoiled cerebral aneurysm. So here's the aneurysm. Um, it's uncoiled, so this is the blood flow through the artery and through the aneurysm, as you can see from these gray streamlines here. That's relatively easy. The next bit is the bit which is difficult, which is what my colleague Yanis Ventikos has been working on. And like Stephen Hawking, I've left one equation um, on the basis that to show that we do work quantitatively, but if I put more, uh, you'd all be um, uh, nodding off by now. This equation is a porous media approximation that allows for the evaluation of the efficacy of the different coiling strategies. So you can see the coil here in the aneurysm, and there you can see that the blood flow um, dynamics are quite different. The blood flow patterns are quite different with the cold aneurysm in place with respect to um, no coiling here at the top. And you can do more than that. Um, and in some very um, uh, uh, remarkable work in, in the recent um, uh, past, uh, Dr. Ventikos, and I'll run the simulation again one more time if I can, um, has been uh, simulating the growth 
of the aneurysm, which is both computational fluid dynamics, but also modeling of the, the, the stress strain according to the biomaterials. So the model accounts for the fibrous populations in the arterial wall, both the elastin and the collagen, their orientation, cross-linking, degradation, and deposition. It allows us to uh, see the evolution of the disease over a period of weeks or months in this case, and capture wall remodeling features such as the thinning of the dome wall that you can see here in the post-mortem specimen here, um, and the change in composition gradually to a material that has more and more collagen in it. So that's biomechanics, all part of mechanical engineering in terms of what we do now. Now, information engineering was the next thing I mentioned, and medical imaging analysis is alive and well here, and in fact, it would take me at least an hour to take you through this picture, so I won't attempt. This is the work now of Professor Noble's group um, from Women's Health here on the left, um, all the way to uh, breast cancer, but also cardiology, image-guided intervention therapy. I'm only going to pick one or two areas to illustrate the work that Alison and her team uh, are doing in the uh, biomedical image analysis laboratory. And here uh, is a little movie of fusion echocardiography. Again, um, two or more electro, uh, ultrasound scans which are fused together to give a higher quality image on the right than a single scan. On the left, you have a conventional volumetric ultrasound scan of the left ventricle. Um, and here shown in orthogonal slices. So the apex of the left ventricle is actually at the top, i.e. upside down, okay? Um, and the end diastolic and end systolic volume segmentation are shown in the lower right corner here. Now, on the right is the fused echocardiography image um, using two, the two scans where you can get a much clearer depiction of the boundaries. It fits the whole of the adult heart in the field of view, and some of the missing boundaries in the single scan on the left uh, can be filled in. Um, here, again, is fusion of um, real-time MR with uh, 3D echocardiography. This is actually quite tricky because the heart is moving in a non-rigid fashion and it's being imaged by magnetic resonance, MR, and ultrasound, which are, uses different sensors with different spatial and temporal resolutions. So you can see here non-rigid registrations of cardiac MR uh, and echocardiography using a fusion technique developed um, by Professor Alison uh, Noble's group. Uh, in particular, you can see on the right here um, the green mitral valve in the echocardiography. Uh, you can see it flapping about here, uh, but not in the MR. And you can also see different structures uh, in the different imaging modalities are well aligned. So that was um, image fusion. Um, looking at breast cancer, you will know the statistics. One in eight women develop breast cancer. And there's the conventional imaging of uh, breast cancer. But here, Professor Noble and her team have developed a new method based on measuring um, the elasticity of the tissue. Because the cancers, the tumors, are stiffer than the surrounding tissue. Um, which means that through um, ultrasound elasticity imaging, we can estimate uh, the strain from the ultrasound measurements when a force, a stress, is applied to the surface of the tissue. And the beauty of this work, which has been tested in the Oxford Breast Care Unit, is that it allows you, through the extra information, to reduce the number of unnecessary biopsies, which are very distressing to women, by up to 40%. And the sort of images that you get are shown here. On the left, in each case, in black and white, is the ultrasound image. Um, here, in color, is the um, elasticity image. Um, cysts here have got high strain, so you see pockets of low strain um, uh, around due to the compression of the surrounding tissue. Um, here's a fibrodynoma, which you can see again very clearly highlighted in color. Um, uh, and, but the more important ones here, of course, are the cancers and the ductal carcinoma in situ, uh, where you have more diffuse strain patterns. Uh, and a greater difference between these pictures with those of the conventional ultrasound. And in some cases, you can't even see the mass properly on the normal ultrasound, but you can see it quite clearly in the uh, elasticity imaging. So um, that's information engineering. 
Um, electrical engineering, um, let me um, take you through this fairly quickly because it's my own work, um, and therefore we can hurry through this. Um, one of the staggering facts, which this is nothing to do with how good or bad doctors are, is the fact that every day people die unnecessarily in hospitals. And the reason why is not that doctors are uh, poor at their jobs, but of course they have lots of patients to look after. On most wards there are eight, eight patients per nurse, and patients may deteriorate without uh, the staff being aware of it. And the National Patient Safety Agency issued a report last summer to say that the most important action which we could take to improve safety would be to identify patients who are deteriorating and act early. The statistics are here. There are 20,000 unscheduled missions to intensive care per year in the UK, 23,000 avoidable cardiac arrests in hospital, and only 5 to 24%, depending on which hospitals you collect statistics from, survive to discharge. And yet, there were vital sign abnormalities beforehand in half the cases. All these critical care patients have their vital signs monitored, but deterioration is still missed. Why? It's because patient monitors generate very high numbers of false alerts, up to about 86%. And so staff, if you walk into a critical care ward, ignore the alarms from the monitors and only check the vital signs when they do their observations every four or six hours. And so what we've developed is a system where we take all of the information which allows us to be much more robust and reliable in the way we can detect what's happening to the patient and fuse again, remember the fusion uh, theme, all of these parameters, heart rate, respiration rate, respiration rate, oxygen saturation levels, blood pressure and temperature to get a single representation of patient status. I don't have time to take you through this slide except to say that this patient was having problems, their oxygen levels were dipping considerably, they were trying to adjust by breathing faster and faster until they ran out of room and crashed and they were transferred to ICU. We spotted the deterioration because we looked at the whole profile four hours before the patient was taken to ICU. Does that make a difference? The answer is yes. Because if you uh, evaluate this technology in a clinical context, you find that without the technology, the number of critical events when the patients crash per 100 hours with usual care is about 0.6 per 100 hours. With the technology we've developed, we've brought that down to about 0.2. And in fact, the, the decrease was so staggering that the clinician in this US hospital in charge of the trial decided that it would be unethical to withdraw the monitors from the ward on which they were. So as we speak, that 24-bed unit is being monitored by um, this technology. So that's the electrical engineering contribution. Now, that's not quite the whole of engineering science in Oxford. We've also got chemical engineers, and since the appointment of Professor Zanfeng Sui, uh, we have uh, done a lot of work um, on bioreactors for tissue engineering and for um, stem cell growth. The problem with stem cells, and I'm sure you all know that this is this wonderful new technology, is you can only harvest between 1,000 and 10,000 cells from a biopsy. And yet, for a single patient treatment, you need between 100 million and a billion cells. So you've got to be able to do stem cell expansion, and uh, SWE is one of the world leaders in developing techniques to take it from 1,000 to 10,000 to a single-dose therapy a requirement of 100 million to 1 billion cells. At the same time, um, another important issue in tissue engineering is nutrient supply. In the lab, we can't grow blood vessels in a controlled manner, so we can't grow bulky tissue. So the solution is to embed, embed hollow fiber members into the scaffolds, which mimics the capillary network. And here you have some of the bioreactors developed by Swiss Group. In addition, Swiss has been working with Rutherford Labs to develop microbioreactors uh, for the study of stem cell functions, uh, the aim being to optimize stem cell uh, culture, with many applications, including uh, drug testing. And... Finally, in this particular area, it is also very important to image the progress, and you can now see the animations have started to go. Um, on the, the image at the top shows human bone marrow stem cells in 3D culture, where we aim to grow these in bone, and the low one on the left shows functional imaging inside a single cell. Now, given the time, 
I'm not going to have, to take you, uh, have time to take you through much of the future, but let me just, um, in the last five minutes, um, complete the picture here. There's still a gap, um, because you have all the branches of engineering uh, represented here, and there's still one which is not represented as civil engineer. <laughs> what civil engineer got to do with biomedical engineering? What uh, civil engineers do is they work out, if somebody builds a tunnel under your house, uh, how much damage your house will suffer and whether it will fall down. And that's done with finite element models, sort of work that my colleague Dr. Harvey Bird uh, does regularly with his colleagues in the civil engineering group. Now, as it happens, this work does have biomedical applications uh, to do with the eye lens. The same um, a numerical approach can be used to model the mechanics of the lens. Um, the lens is held in tension by the zonules here, that you can see, um, and the light entering the eye is refracted into the retina by the cornea and the lens, um, and here's the retina to which the light end up. Now, the lens is held in tension by the zonules, which are radial fibers connecting the lens to the ciliary body. So, about 100 years ago, exactly when we started here um, in engineering science, Helmholtz, who's a very famous engineer, studied the accommodation process in the eye. And that's the way the eye is able to adjust its optical power. So when you view near objects, the lens is, as shown on the right, is accommodated. Um, to achieve this state, the ciliary body uh, contracts so that the tension in the zonules is reduced and the lens forms a thicker and more rounded shape, as you can see. In the unaccommodated state on the left, when the eye is looking at distant objects, the ciliary body relaxes, and so the tension in the zonules increase, and the lens becomes less curved on its optical axis. So this happens naturally until you're about 50. <laughs> and this is why it's actually the first lecture I'm wearing my, uh, uh, my bifocal glasses, because I, I need to read my notes. Normally, undergrads, I don't have notes, and be able to look at you. So this is perfect timing, because I turned 50 a few months ago. And so I'm an exact illustration that we all lose these mechanisms um, at around about age 50. And it is important to understand this mechanism, and this is where <coughs> Dr. Bird's finite element modeling, previously applied to tunneling or unpaved roads, has been applied to um, the, uh, studying the um, deformation of the eye in the accommodated versus unaccommodated state. So the future, and I had about 10, 15 slides, but I, we will have to... Um, have another occasion when we talk about the feature, or maybe a lecture in 10 years' time when I can explain to you uh, what we are planning to do to see where we ha whether we've done it or not. But let me make a couple of remarks. First of all, the future is bright because we have this wonderful building as a result of signing a deal with Technikos, and here's on the first floor our new Institute of Biomedical Engineering, and there's some other labs in the lower ground floor. What we will be doing is collaborating with clinicians. I'm not going to explain all of this. In red are the themes of the Oxford Biomedical Research Centre. There are about 14 of them, and we as engineers in our new Institute of Biomedical Engineering are involved in seven of them. And um, as part of uh, this collaboration, as you can see, we'll be working in many different areas of medicine. Now, whereas the National Health uh, promises to look after you from the cradle to the grave, what we will be looking in the Institute of Biomedical Engineering is to look after you from before the cradle uh, and delaying the grave. So <laughs> there is a huge program of fetal ultrasound imaging, um, including imaging the heart of the fetus in vivo, as you can see here. I'm afraid because this presentation is so big, it's got so many animations. It doesn't quite run in real time. Um, we will also be dealing with the fact that the landscape in healthcare is changing completely. My first 25 years ended in 1990. That was the profile of, why, of people's sickness, if you want. What it is now, nearly, and going in 2020, is this. So there's a huge shift from um, disease to chronic disease. 30% of children in this country have asthma. One in three child born in the US last year will develop diabetes. So how can we come, cope with this? Well, um, I'm not going to take you through this in detail, just to say that working with one of the spin-out companies, T Plus Medical, 
We are developing real-time telehealth where people are being supported through the everyday technology of their mobile phones to look after their health properly and get feedback on how they're doing whilst being supported by a remote clinician. And this way we hope actually to make the Prime Minister uh, stick to his word um, in 2008 on at least one occasion, which is to deliver 100,000 telehealth solutions within the next three years in the UK. Um, so the vision is to have the feedback for the patient on the right, uh, a nurse monitoring your progress and helping you, educating you, and helping you to avoid your condition degenerating sufficiently that you have to end up in hospital. One of the conditions, uh, diabetes, often leads to stroke. Now, with stroke, you have a decision to make within two hours, usually three hours of the stroke maybe, whether to thrombolize, whether to inject a clot-busting agent or not. Very difficult decision to make. My colleague Stephen Payne is working on modeling what is happening uh, within the microvasculature, whether we're able to bypass the region that was starved of oxygen to compensate uh, for the effects of the stroke and have a normal life afterwards or not. Um, so in the hospital of the future, if you end up there after a stroke, you will have two things will happen. You will have ICU-level care as and when required, enabled by the sort of technology I was telling you uh, about. Uh, and at the same time, the ward round will change. In 10 years' time, they will not start at one end of the room, work all the way around, and come back to where they started. Clinicians with whom we're working in the John Ratcliffe will have personal digital assistants who will do the ward round according to the patient criticality, not where their bed happens to be in the room. Now, finally, in my last two slides, I just want to give you a message of hope, which is that uh, cancer will become a long-term condition, primarily through um, the use of novel therapies personalised for the patient. Here, ultrasound being developed again by Constantine, who did the, the introduction, using two dif uh, three different types of bubble activity, which we know technically as cavitation, sniper bubbles, um, which perforate cell walls and increase cell permeability to the drug that you're trying to inject, Mix the bubbles to enhance the local mouse transport and helping the drug to spread. And finally, furnace bubbles, the effect of which you can see right here at the end, which will create highly localized heat deposition. Very targeted uh, cancer treatment, killing the cells that you need to kill without the surrounding normal tissue. And finally, um, even the effects of uh, half-term skiing will be overcome because through the collaborations of people like uh, Professor Sui and Dr. Thompson will bring together the um, uh, chemical tissue engineering lab with the mechanobiology to rebuild your bones or tendons or ligaments through damage or injury. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I've been asked if I would make a few remarks. So, uh, <laughs> I'll content myself with two. The first one is, it seems to me, what Lionel has shown us this evening is that biomedical engineering is broad, it's deep, it touches every single facet of engineering science. It is therefore entirely appropriate that biomedical engineering should be a major topic of research within this department, which is the Holistic Engineering Science Department. We have seen the effortless flow from fluid mechanics to mechanical engineering, to civil engineering, to electrical engineering. And there are very few places on the planet that could mobilize that kind of coherent activity. And I think Lionel has given us a terrific illustration of that. The second remark I'd like to make is that in giving these talks, as I shall find out myself next term, given these talks, there are no briefs you have carte blanche to talk about pretty much whatever you want to talk about. And I th think you can see that Lionel, in the few snapshots that he showed of his own work, could have actually easily filled an hour by just talking about his own work. But Lionel is a consummate team player and actually took this opportunity not to promote himself in his own work, but rather to champion the work of the entire team, both past and present within biomedical engineering. I think that's characteristic of the man and characteristic of the subject. 
And so <coughs> those are the only two remarks I wanted to make, except for just to re reiterate one thing that Lionel said at the beginning. We have all of us been at uh, conferences, uh, I think, where a speaker has deliberately ran over time <laughs> so that he couldn't have any questions <laughs> asked. <laughs> Uh, and is instead pointed to his graduate students uh, who would field all the questions uh, later on. Uh, I'm no graduate student, and he didn't wimp out, but nevertheless, there'll be a bunch of us uh, carrying uh, little things like this, and we have been charged with answering all the questions uh, that you wanted to pose to Lionel. And let me tell you, let me encourage you, that you ignore this. And you go and talk to Lionel. <laughs> and I urge and beseech you to do that because the hell with it. I'm going to drink red wine. <laughs> so Lionel, as ever, it takes a million. Thanks very much, Mike. <laughs>